Well, hey guys, welcome back to the show. This is your host, Hunter McWaters. And uh, this week I got an episode with you uh, with my buddy Ned. So if you've been listening for a while or seen the Kodiak film, uh, you've heard me talk about or you maybe have seen Ned. Um, he's a good friend of mine. He's one of the dudes that really got me into Western hunting. He had actually invited me on my first ever Western hunt um, in Alaska. We did that first uh, hunt together and then, of course, we did Kodiak together. Um, so really good dude. He's a veteran, um, ex Navy special warfare, um, great hunter and uh, fellow Virginian. Um, so anyway, on this episode, you know, um, we get into, as the title might suggest a lot about antelope hunting, a lot about Alaska. And then we talk about, um, ammunition. That's pretty, um, knowledgeable as far as different cartridges and loads and stuff like that. So we talk about the 300 wind mag versus Creedmoor for elk and different stuff. But, uh, we focus a lot on, um, Alaska and antelope season. Um, because, uh, Ned, as you'll find out in the episode is going to be moving up to Alaska soon and he's working on different pilots licenses and stuff like that. Um, so Lord willing, I will have a friend in Alaska <laughs> that has a uh, aircraft, you know, in the next couple years, which just opens up a ton of cool doors. So, um, you know, obviously I'd still be friends with Ned, even if he didn't move to Alaska, but you know, it's just a cool thing to have if you um, are blessed with a friend like that. So anyway, um, again, Ned's a great guy. Also, Ned drew a uh, really premier antelope tag in Nevada this year. And, um, you know, this is one of the first times he's really drew, uh, drawn like an awesome tag like this. So I wanted to get him on and talk about it. And uh, if you've been on my social media, you might have seen in my story, um, I just got a, uh, a little uh, picture in my uh, message inbox of him with a nice buck. So he did fill his tag. Um, however, we recorded this episode before that hunt, but we talk about the hunt and antelope hunting in general and, and kind of some e-scouting and, um, and just different, different stuff like that. Um, so if you're heading out for antelope or if you're heading to Alaska, now's the time of year. So I hope this will get you pumped up, you know, and even if you're sticking around home in your home state, you know, hunting deer or waiting for dove season to open, whatever it may be, you know, it's a really exciting type of time of year, you know, falls in the air, um, and, uh, and seasons are starting to open up everywhere. So I'm really excited about, you know, what's coming down the line. I know you guys are too. So, um, again, whether you're heading out West, whether you live out West or if you're uh, sticking around home, you know, there's, uh, there's adventure to be had everywhere, even right in your own back door. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with me and Ned and, um, you know, I'm heading out soon on my antelope hunt. So Lord willing, I'll fill a tag or two there. And then me and Ned will get back together, you know, at some point, um, you know, during the season or after the season, and I'll get a recap of his Nevada antelope hunt and then also give a recap to him about, uh, filling my Wyoming tag, you know, Lord willing. So anyway, guys, enjoy this episode, um, and, uh, check out the discount codes I got in the description field and, uh, yeah, we'll see you guys on the next one. So yeah, if you're just joining, I am here with my buddy who I talk about actually a lot on this podcast. I don't know if you know it, but I end up mentioning you a lot. Uh, so I'm here with uh, my buddy Ned, who I went on my first, for, if you've been a longtime listener, you probably you know heard of Ned or even listened to the episodes we did together in the beginning about our first Alaska trip. But yeah, Ned really got me into Western hunting by inviting me 
on my first ever Western hunt was that DIY caribou thing. And, um, yeah, that really changed my life and launched me into kind of doing something, doing this whole podcast and everything. So, um, Ned is an OG. So welcome, sir. Nice, man. Glad to be here. Always, (laughs) always good to get down. Yeah. And if you've seen the Kodiak film, also you saw Ned, um, drop a, what was it? 107 inch blacktail buck. Uh, yeah. Something like that, man. Biggest (laughs) one that I'll ever have anything to do with. (laughs) Yeah. He's also really humble if you can't tell. So, but yeah, Ned is the dude who was in the Kodiak film with me. Um, and, uh, yeah, we were kind of, it was kind of funny because when we went on that first trip, we didn't really know each other that well. I mean, kind of a friend of a friend and Ned sort of hit me up on Instagram. It was just good timing. Um, but that was kind of interesting, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we'd hunted a few times in like high school and college and stuff. Yeah. And, um, that was kind of a crazy idea that I had (laughs) for that trip. Uh, and I knew that it would definitely take someone else who really enjoys the finer things in life, like pain and misery and (laughs) (laughs) suffering and small chances of success. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I don't know, man. Um, now that trip like opened my eyes up uh, to the possibilities, man. Like I came back with that thing with so much more confidence. Cause I remember, I remember when we moved to our second spot and like, we saw some animals way up on this ridge and you were like, all right, we're going up there. And I was like, what? Are you kidding me? Like, <laughs> we're going to walk up that? And you're like, yeah, we'll do it. Just one step at a time. And that's what it was, man. And we just did it. And, uh, you know, after that coming back, it just made me so much more confident and just that you can do stuff like that. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. I mean, truly, dude, we did great on that trip. Um, yeah. I was actually just talking with some guys. I, uh, I was up there last week and uh, talking with some guys who've done similar uh, profile hunts to that. And um, yeah, man, we saw some really great country, put some good miles in mm-hmm. uh, great experience. Um, that's yeah. <laughs> I think we've discussed this a few times before, but that's like the most difficult possible way to try to harvest a caribou yeah. basically. Yeah. And, basically we did um, walk in yeah, DIY. Yeah. We saw Yep. We did basically a walk in. I think there's a little bit of a lag, so sorry about that. But um but yeah, we did basically a walk in DIY caribou hunt and had at least two which in re- retrospect were probably legal animals, but we intentionally did not pull a trigger because we just weren't on the same page about whether it was a legal animal or not because you know, cows have antlers and these were small bulls. We weren't hundred percent sure. So I think we made the right call, but either way it was a, like you said, an amazing experience, life-changing trip. So it was good. Yeah, man. I mean, got out there, uh, passed some legal animals, um, saw a bunch of, bunch of other animals, saw some awesome country. So yeah, man, that's about all you can ask for, man. So you, you mentioned it, you were just up, there in alaska so tell folks what you're up to and why you were just there and tell me kind of what um happened. well I was, yeah for sure man um so i'm a pilot uh, i'm a flight instructor for anyone who's uh 
who doesn't know me. Um, so I was up there uh, getting my seaplane rating. So I'm now a seaplane nice. instructor, which is truly a pretty useless certification to have in the state of Virginia. <laughs> um, but it's uh, it's really good stuff. You know, I'm moving up to Alaska uh, here in the next few years. And obviously, you know, you got to have that up there. Oh, yeah. um, so I uh, just went ahead and got that knocked out. Um, then, uh, me and some buddies fit in a few days of hiking salmon and drop fishing on the back end of that down in, uh, the Chugach wilderness area. Um, and, uh, well, I I guess it'd be the Kenai wilderness near the Chugach national forest, but, um, yeah, down on the Kenai peninsula, just hiked in, caught some trout, um, ate a ton of blueberries and had a great (laughs) time, man. It was super fun. Yeah, dude. So why so why are you moving i know why but why are you moving to alaska are you allowed to talk about <laughs> yeah, it they asked me that uh in my interview for my job last year <laughs> and i was like oh because it's the greatest place on earth <laughs> and they were like okay that settles that <laughs> um it is man you know if you're obsessed with the outdoors uh in the way that i think you and me and probably a lot of the people that listen to you are um, Alaska is just, you know, it's, that's it. It's the, the last frontier. It's the ultimate. Um, yeah, I, I think I've been up there like 14 times now or 15 times or something. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I was active duty for seven years after college and, um, <laughs> my little, uh, retirement gift to myself was a blacktail trip up there. And, um, when I shot my blacktail then in 2019, I just decided on the spot. I was like, you know, this is too sick. Uh, you only go around one time in life and, yeah. uh, you know, not getting any younger, you got to do it sooner than later. So I decided right there that I was, um, that I was going to move up there. And, uh, after that I went through, got all my pilot's licenses and, um, yeah, now I've uh, got a job up there that I'm doing all the in processing stuff for and, um, hopefully be up there sooner than later. Okay, if you guys can't tell yet, um, sometimes you have to pull things out of Ned. Are you allowed to say what your job is that you're working towards? Oh, yeah, man. It's not like anything. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, so yeah, secretive. That's, that's just old habits about being kind of uh, a weirdo about work. But, yeah, man, I'm going um, to be flying Blackhawks for the uh, Alaska Air Guard up there. So um, So sick. You know, knock on wood, hoping that all the processing stuff goes goes smoothly. Um, yeah. But yeah, uh, if you you know in twenty twenty six ish time frame, if you hit that SOS button on your inReach, then uh, you might just see me. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's that's crazy, man. So that, that's and it's been quite a process. I mean, you've been in the process of this for a couple of years now already. Is that right? Um. T- yeah. You know, it's not uncommon for the process to be long for this um, specific facet of the military. It's a really uh, unique kind of small program that, you know, uh, a lot of times takes a while. Um, I got selected for for it last year and, you know, they just got to go over everything about your life, especially the medical side of things being prior service and Mm -hmm. me having, a bunch of overseas deployments and everything. They just want to go over your 
whole life with fine tooth comb. So in the yeah. process of doing that right now. Um, Cause it's not like you're going to you know, be sitting in a, a firehouse. Yeah. It's like, not like you're going to be sitting in a firehouse and like getting one call a month or something. Like those guys are pretty busy. I'm assuming in Alaska, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. They, um, I'm pretty sure they get the most calls of any air guard unit. You know, Alaska is yeah. just such a different animal than anywhere in the lower 48. Um, you know, the guys that I talked to uh, last year when I was doing my interview said that they stay real busy, especially this time of year. Um, yeah, I bet. So, yeah, you definitely get some good hours in. It's, uh, it's, it's a great way to get very, very good at flying a Black Hawk helicopter is what I understand. So. Yeah. Yeah, excited to get that going here. Dude, I can't believe you went to Alaska in August without a tag in your pocket. That would just make me crazy. But... Uh, <laughs> man, we I was supposed to fly out on August 10th and uh, you know, opening day for sheep and caribou and mm. even down to ptarmigan and small game stuff and um of course American canceled my flight last minute. Ah. And so I was just like sitting there in Anchorage, like watching people fish ship Creek, <laughs> like waiting for three different flights that got canceled on opening day. And it was a beautiful day, excellent conditions to fly in and be hunting. And I was just like sitting around downtown Anchorage, hating my life. So oh, dude. yeah, it's pretty painful, man. That one, that one was an L for sure. <laughs> yeah. Downtown Anchorage. It's well, the only time I've been there is kind of similar, like waiting either to come in or come out, and is semi depressing. I guess because you're like thinking you're in Alaska, but then you're like in this city, and it's just kind of weird. But I mean, it's a cool city. I'm not saying it's not a cool city, but like when you want to be in the field and it's like hunting season, you don't want to be in downtown Anchorage, probably. Yeah, Los Anchorage, man. <laughs> um, yeah on august 10th being in downtown just like means that something went wrong on your (laughs) end (laughs) exactly um but you know that's all right man uh it it was uh it was good you know i got um got a little bit of professional development in this year rather than uh yeah rather than just going up and just straight up fun um you know kind of establishing the resume a little bit on the aviation side oh, yeah. of the house up there. Um, so you can full on like you're good to go for like flying seaplanes. Yes. Yeah. That's and once sick, you, uh, once you've got your license, you're good. Um, the only stipulation there is that you got to have three landings and takeoffs within the past 90 days in one in order to carry passengers um, and of course there are not a lot of seaplanes kicking around in central Virginia. So, um, basically to use one, I got to go get current in it. Uh, they call that getting checked out with whoever is renting you the plane, but, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I've got the, got the rating now. Um, it's super fun. Seaplane flying is like, it's very artistic. Hmm. Um, I, for anyone who hasn't flown with, uh, with a seaplane, uh, transporter or never been to seaplane it's um you know the parameters all of the numbers about it are kind of loosely defined because of uh because of the nature of flying on water like 
Um, for most planes, there are all these tables that you can look up in the pilot operating handbook, POH. Mm-hmm. And for seaplanes, it's not really like that. Is the sea state may be different one day and uh, your takeoff role may be a lot different than it was on other days. So um, it's really a lot about being one with your aircraft and uh, knowing your plane. And um, yeah, man, it's it's just really, really cool kind of flying. I was kind of drinking from a fire hose there, did the whole course in three days, which is oh, wow. like uh, very, very fast paced. Yeah. But um, yeah, I got it done. Uh, the examiner, the pilot examiner that did my check ride for me was a really cool guy. We talked a ton about Alaskan aviation and um, yeah, it's just, I mean, that world up there, man, you could spend 10 lifetimes exploring it and still, yeah. you know, just barely have scratched the surface. So yeah, I know. And that's, yeah, it was, dude, it was that's, really cool to kind of get my feet wet. Yeah. That's like what was so cool to me about that first, um, experience in Alaska when I went with you was like, I remember just like when we set off from our, tr- our U-Haul van <laughs> and it was just like, you know, we were going to go maybe five to seven miles in, but like, you know, having studied the maps and stuff, like, you could just keep going for like ever and like never hit a town, never hit a road. Uh, I mean, eventually at some point, I mean, obviously at some point, but I mean like, you know, just an enormously vast expanse of land, like full of probably some animals that may live and die their entire lives and never see a human. Like um, just the possibility and like the, the adventure that kind of brings to mind is just, is just so cool. And that's, and so, you know, I got to thank you for kind of putting that love for Alaska in me, um, which I think I told you, but I will be going up there in 2023. Um, but what's your, um, I'm just curious, like two part question. So you have whatever rating you would need to fly a cub already. Right. And then when are you, what's your timeline for going up there? Uh, well, You'll have to ask uh, the Air Force <laughs> on that one. <laughs> it's not up to me at this point, unfortunately. Um, as soon as they send me, then basically I'll be doing somewhere in the neighborhood of 18 months of rotor wing training. So uh, learning to fly helicopters might be mm-hmm. a little bit longer than that. Um, so that is pretty much all lower 48. So right now it's realistically probably looking like early 25, something nice. like that, late 24. Nice. Um, yeah, I mean, all of all of my pilot's licenses, all the flying that I've done has been on the civilian side. Yeah. Um, so uh, I have to kind of start over, you know, from scratch, so to speak, uh, with the military aviation thing. So that's going to officer candidate school um, and then flight school and then a bunch of stuff to get qualified in the HH60 platform. Um, But uh, yeah, man, I mean, as soon as I can, (laughs) it's the best answer I can give. I know you're ready to get up there. Um, Oh man, I'm going to try if there are any breaks in the training pipeline there during August, September, I'm going to try to get up there for, uh, for hunts. Cause yeah. man, I just, you know, it, it just pains me so much to even think about missing a year going up there. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
you know, you gotta, you gotta think of the long game. It's for Absolutely. a good cause. And, uh, yeah, I'm hoping that I'll have all my ducks really in a row. Um, once I do get up there to, uh, you know, be in a pretty good place to fly us into some cool caribou hunts, get redemption Dude. for that one, two years ago. <laughs> Dude, that, I mean, yeah, that's going to be sick. Like, it's just so hard to even just a caribou like drop camp. It's so hard these days and so, so pricey. Um, so, I mean, like just, yeah, I'm stoked for you for your job and everything, but I've got to be honest. I'm a little bit selfishly stoked that I will have a buddy in Alaska potentially with an aircraft. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. I mean, that's <laughs> like, uh, yeah. Like you gotta, you gotta be honest about that. Anyone would be stoked. To, I'd be stoked if I had a friend up there with a cub right now. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, you know, you're you're saying like the expense and everything, and the weight is so crazy. But like, really, it's just at this point the ability to have a good hunt. Like, yeah. it's just so much harder. Uh, you know, if you're planning to hunt three years out, like who knows what kind of personal circumstances can come yeah, up, for sure. whether your transporter is even in business by then. Yeah. Like the first transporter that I flew in with to shoot a caribou in 2018 has, I got an email last year saying they, that the operation was for sale and they were going out of business. So, mm. um, you know, it's, yeah, it's just really hard to, to plan it um as a non-resident these days yeah. to be very honest it's uh plus if you got a young family and getting you're, tougher and tougher yeah, yeah. I mean, if you got a young family and you have like career stuff that you don't know about or like like right now i'm literally trying like my wife we're, we're thinking about having another kid at some point and it's like we're like seriously like trying to like figure out like timing of like trying to not have a baby in like certain times of the year is just like because of hunting season <laughs> which might sound insane to some people but probably not people listening to this but um but yeah dude that's that's amazing man i'm stoked for you uh i know i've said it before but congrats on that that's a really cool opportunity um and i'm not just stoked because you could potentially fly us in on some cool hunts i'm also just stoked for you so that's that's sick man I know you love Alaska, so. Yeah, yeah, man. I mean, yeah, like I said, every time I'm up there, I just, like, I hate leaving. The flight out is so beautiful and so depressing at the same time. <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's just so sad to, you know, be flying away, leaving it. So, oh, yeah. yeah, man, I uh, I just can't wait to be up there. <laughs> Yeah, for some reason, right when you're saying that, just like the memory of us cleaning those deer at the municipal fish dock in Kodiak, and then walking through town with your like ginormous blacktail buck, and then um, <laughs> caping the deer out in the hotel room of the Shelikoff Lodge, and like I think at one point you dropped a small piece of brain on accident on the floor and I was just laughing uncontrollably. I still have a picture of like a blacktail brain on the floor of the Shelikoff Lodge. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's kind of um, the non-resident thing, you know, living, living by the skin of your teeth, living at a yeah. lodge is like not knowing anyone. Airbnbs. Uh, compared to, 
yeah, you know, renting, renting vehicles and all that stuff compared to, uh, 2019 when I was up there, my buddy, uh, Colby, who's in the coast guard, um, we just processed everything in his garage and it was so nice. nice. It was like, yeah. Oh, well, you need a hacksaw or you need some more freezer bags or whatever. Yeah. yeah we got all that. You know, it was, it was like a little taste of what being a resident is going to yeah. be like. And, um, although we did get you hooked through your like ex military connections or somehow, I don't even remember how it all went down, but somehow Ned was able to get us into the MWR, um, fish cleaning station at the Kodiak, like air or uh, coast guard base. And we were able to like, um, you know, vacuum steal all our meat and stuff. That was, that was money. Yeah, man. Those chamber sealers are undefeated. Um, <laughs> you, those things, like I actually, I had some uh, blacktail from 2019, like a few months ago and it was still good. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, no, I still got some. Yeah. Those chamber sealers are, are incredible. Um, is, is my video. Yeah. I, or? I can do your video cause it's laggy and I'm wondering if that might help the connection. So, um, it's all yeah. um, cool. Man. I, well, so we could probably sit here and reminisce about Alaska forever. Um, but I know that you also have a really, do you, I know you have one really sick antelope tag and then do you have any other stuff coming up? But, um, I want to hear about that antelope tag. Yeah. Yeah. I've, uh, I've got, um, a really, really sick antelope tag that I'm very excited <laughs> for. And I've also, got can you say the a, state it uh, is in? one of the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Got, uh, finally pulled a Nevada antelope tag. Nice. Um, Northern Nevada, uh, pretty stoked on that man it was um to put it mildly extremely long draws for that but yeah. uh yeah somehow you know i was kind of throwing a hail mary there and uh somehow got drawn um that was the first like limited entry so to speak um that was the first like desirable tag really of any species that i've ever drawn all all my hunts have either been over the counter or you know second yeah. choice or in uh units that don't take a ton of points or no points at all so um it yeah, remind man, me like my I, first time starting to uh athletes. yeah I, I forget like um is nevada nevada's a, a points state right it's not random correct that's correct they um they use bonus points in nevada so okay. Uh, bonus points versus preference points, uh, a little bit different, you know, like a preference point system. If you and I both attack, apply for the same tag and you have five points, I have four, then you get the tag. Yeah. Um, a bonus point system, if you have five points and I have four points, then basically the way Nevada does it is you get the squared number of points as entries into the hat. So you would get 25 entries and I would get 16 entries in that gotcha. example. Um, actually, they also add plus one to that for the year that you're applying, I guess. Uh, so I would get 17, you would get 26 entries. Um, but it does give everyone a chance. Whereas yeah. in a strict preference point system, 
if you have more points, then you definitely get the tag. Um, okay. So it's cool in that sense. Uh, but the, the negative side of things is that the odds in Nevada these days are really just getting yeah. so long that like it, it is kind of playing the lottery, even if, you know, like I, I had, I think I had four or five years worth of points in Nevada okay. and four or five my points. odds for drawing this tag were less than, yeah. So I had four or five bonus points and my odds of drawing this tag um, as of last year's data were less than one in 10,000. So, wow. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, and, and it's that way for a lot of hunts out there. So, um, yeah. that's kind of the downside to it. Like they have, they have a great system out there. And although I don't have any experience with it yet, I hear that they do a phenomenal job, uh, managing their wildlife and really cool place to hunt. But, um, the opportunity especially if you're just starting to get in like after the covid surge in applications mm-hmm. um and the opportunity is really really tough getting tags out there so that's a um that's a rifle hunt correct uh, uh they phrase it as any legal weapon okay. so you could use a rifle you could also use archery tackle whatever Whatever is uh, legally good to go by the weapons restrictions in Nevada, but um, yeah. yeah, I'll be I'll be taking a rifle. <laughs> want to sure, want to make this one count because I'm not ever gonna draw this tag again. So, <laughs> and so I'm gonna ask you questions about it. I don't want to get you know obviously too specific about your unit and stuff. So if feel free to if you don't want to answer a question, it's fine. But um, so it's you're gonna do any legal weapons. You're gonna do a rifle. Um, and it, when, when are you heading out there? Like, when's it open or when are you heading out? Uh, yeah, we heading out on Saturday. So oh, nice. hopefully I'll be in place on the X the day before season opens on the 22nd, um, which is not really an adequate amount of scouting time. But, again, that's kind of uh, just <laughs> – par for the course for being a non-resident you kind of just got to take it as it comes um you know it's uh it's a really great tag like i said that i will probably never interact with again um and i know that a lot of people would be thinking like oh man i gotta make this uh you know I, i gotta hold out for a real trophy animal i'm not gonna shoot one that's under 70 inches or whatever um but that's really not the way that I'm viewing this one because uh, understanding all the limitations I have relative to say a guy who lives near there and knows right. the area really well, realistically, if I see a nice buck that is mature, has good character, cool looking animal, um, probably going to send it <laughs> because yeah. um, you know, it, it, as a non-resident having one of these tags and, you know, basically I got four hunting days for this. Oh, wow. um, then say you get weathered out or say you got 30, 40 mile an hour winds or something, right. you know, crazy like that one day, then you got three days of hunting and, uh, you know, never, never know what happens. You have mechanical issues. All of a sudden your hunting time gets whittled down a lot. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, uh, I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to be selective in terms of age class of animals. Sure. 
um for sure i definitely don't want to <laughs> don't want to burn the tag on a young buck or um anything that i'm uh i'm gonna right. regret burning it on but um yeah you know i'm, I'm not gonna be like super super picky and put a number on things that i'm gonna yeah. <laughs> no, exclude I, anything less than that i'm with you on that dude yeah. like just as far as the way i hunt and my hunts i got coming up too i mean like you said, as a non-resident, it, it changes things. And the fact that, you know, I'm still relatively new into the Western hunting. So it's like, you know, I'll get stoked by a mule deer that probably someone who's been hunting mule deer their entire lives might not be as stoked about, but that's okay. And it's just the kind of thing where it's like, I'm the same with you. Like, I don't like putting a number or a score or anything. It's just like, if I see that animal and you just know, it's like, yes, like that is a shooter for me. You know what I mean? Yeah, man. I uh, <laughs> I don't know. It's kind of weird interacting with the whole scoring system. Um, yeah. So like when we got back from Kodiak last year, uh, <laughs> you remember that guy in the airport who came up and he was like, let me see that thing. You know, and he's like looking at it and apparently he owned a lodge on raspberry or something. He was like, okay. you got to get that scored. <laughs> yeah. The biggest blacktail I've ever seen. Or something like that. And um, like he was absolutely correct. Like that that animal did need to be scored. And I went ahead and uh, called one of the BNC measures up and met him up here and had it taped out and everything. Nice. And actually that was a really cool experience because the guy who measured it for me is an awesome hunter, um, makes his own trad bows, oh, obviously nice. super experienced outdoors. I mean, it was just like really cool talking to him and getting to meet him. And he's yeah. actually going to be hunting a mule deer tag, not too far from where I'm going to be in Nevada. So oh, nice. that was a cool connection. But like, <laughs> I remember when he was like, when he was telling me the score and everything, he was taping it out and he was like, all right, yeah, a hundred's the minimum. It's one Oh seven. He's in. I was like, okay, cool. Like he's in the book. That really doesn't matter anywhere nearly as much and I, like i was holding the rack and i was like i was thinking about like the number value that gets assigned to it versus mm -hmm. like the memories and the experience oh, that yeah. had up there and it just struck me like how secondary that uh that like very numerical value that they assign to an animal is like i know you got to do it somehow but i was just holding the rack and i was like man <laughs> you know like the memories of that experience i I'm definitely not going to forget that day. I'll remember it until yeah. the day that I die. That <laughs> and awesome. like, and the fact know, that we got it on camera assigned to it is just like, yeah, you know, on, yeah, the bottom of the ninth, uh, on a crazy hunt where we saw all of the highs and lows of a place yep. that's just as incredible and wild as Kodiak, so like, cool. you know, all of those memories and that experience, like that's just so much more important than like, you know, any number that an animal totally. could get. So I yeah. guess that's kind of where I'm going with on this antelope hunt is like, you know, I'm going to be hunting this with one of my buddies that I went through training with, uh, cool. uh, uh, who is a great guy. Uh, you know, one, one of my oldest friends from the military, um, actually his son's going to tag along too. And just like cool. the experience of getting to go out there and like share a hunt like that, yeah. um is so much more valuable than like oh man i gotta eke out every last inch of score from an animal 
you know, like, oh, I, I'd better pass that one because right. this is the class of animal that I can expect from this unit or blah, blah, blah. Like, yeah. that just doesn't come into the equation, man. It's all about, like, you know, having a cool experience out there. Totally, man. To me, it's like, it's all about just that feel. Like, it's like, you know, it just it's just something kind of you can't really articulate. And, and like, even, even the particular experience of that one animal plays into it as well. Like... Like if I, you know, just make an example, I'm not even saying this is true for me, but just make an example. If I had seen my, you know, my black tail, um, like early in the trip or like the first day or something like, you know, maybe we wouldn't have taken it. We probably would have, but I'm just saying as for example's sake, um, but like yeah. the fact that we, the, the way that the hunt went where we shot that first deer, um, Tommy shot that first deer on the first full day, and then basically saw nothing for four days. And then it was the last morning, this gorgeous morning, the, the, the crisp, you can see our breath and the, the sun is, the light is just beautiful. And, and then we had this two bucks together and managed to get a double right there at the end. Like I wasn't even I didn't even look at the size of the antlers, dude. I was just like, this is amazing. Like I'm definitely shooting, you know what I mean? Like, or, you know, just when you, to me, it's like when you see that animal, you know, it just, uh, you just know without, and I'm the same way, man. I don't get wrapped up in scores or anything like that. It's just like, yep, that one's, that one gets me excited. Yeah, man. Like that moment when we saw those two animals, it was like, you're exactly right. We both just intuitively knew like, okay, this is it. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's just such an incredible experience. Like, yeah, you know, that was like, that is what everybody goes up to Alaska for. And, uh, you know, inches of antler really is, uh, a very, uh, very low on the priority list at that point. It was just an, an awesome encounter that we had with those animals in a really yep. incredible location, um, you know, hours before we're supposed to get picked up, beautiful day is like, yep. yeah, when everything falls into place, man, you just got to go with the flow. Yeah. That was like this. Um, yeah. And, and also, like you said, sharing the experience with, you know, a really good friend. Um, you know, I, my hat's off to the guys that can solo hunt and stuff and I've done it, but to me, it's just much more ex enjoyable experience. Like, um, when you have someone to share the, the joy with, and I get, I get why solo hunting at times would be cool too, but getting to share that. And then, you know, maybe, you know, putting kind of imparting a love for the outdoors into his son, you know, while you're out there, um, like this, you know, this, this film I just released recently of my antelope, this guy right here from last year. Um, even, I mean, he's a pretty nice buck, but even if I had shot a doe, just the fact that I was out there and shared it with my cousin helped him. Like, I mean, I walked them through getting their preference points, you know, basically did the draw applications for them, you know, got them out there. And, um, that just makes it so much, so much more just, I don't know. The memory is just amazing. You saw that. Yeah, man. You saw that film, and, didn't you? Uh, like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was like, I was telling you, um, when, when you were asking me like, yo, what do you think of the film? Um, like, do you think that, uh, you know, do you, do you think that this like captures it well and everything? I was like, yeah, dude, <laughs> you know, like, uh, obviously, um, 
like you said, there were uh, there were some things like your shot, the uh, the shot of yeah. you getting your buck. Like, yeah, you probably could have, uh, you know, had like the camera focused a little bit better at that point or whatever. Yeah, way but the film captures beautifully. Yeah, yeah. But uh, the film captures really beautifully, like the excitement leading up to that point. And you guys, uh, you know, like overcoming all of the obstacles, like as cousins, as hunting yeah. buddies that you encounter in a hunt like that. And anyone who's ever been out there doing that, you know, like they they know what the deal is. And uh, the way that you captured that film really helps you relive that kind of thing. If you've been out there on a hunt like that before, yeah. um, you know, and the excitement for the experience is very genuine uh that's that's really obvious from that film and uh you know me personally i i just like seeing uh that really cool footage of the groups of animals that you got yeah. um knowing that i have a pronghorn tag in my pocket right now uh you know when i was watching it i was just getting super stoked they're just such cool animals <laughs> they man. really are man they're so unique being out in that environment yeah yeah they're such cool and, unique uh, animals i think i uh I think I sent you that uh, that entry the other day from Meriwether Lewis's journal. I'm uh, reading a book, um, Undaunted Courage, right now, um, about the Lewis and Clark expedition. And it was funny. It was right when you sent me that link. I was reading a uh, journal entry by Lewis talking about how hard antelope are to hunt. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's true, man. Those things are um, – they keep you on your toes during your stalk. That's for sure. Yeah. And did, you said you, one of your buddies saw it too. Is that your buddy that you're going with or is that somebody else? Yeah, it is. Uh, that's my buddy, Mike. Um, like I said, him and his son are uh, going to fly up uh, from the West coast. Um, yeah. So you liked was, it? Uh, we were, we were all talking about how cool the terrain is and how stoked we are to get out there and chase those things around, man. Cool, man. Well, shameless plug and then we'll move on but if you haven't seen it yet go to my youtube channel and watch watch that film um is really fun hunt and um got a lot more cool stuff coming out this year but um enough on that um thanks for watching that by the way and giving your input um but um so is the is the style of hunt similar to kind of what you saw in that film um or are you doing it kind of more backcountry style or how, how are you going to attack the hunt? Uh, it's going to be pretty similar to what you guys were doing. Um, I think the area where we are is probably not going to be quite as plainsy okay. as where I was going to ask about the terrain were, as well. Uh, the part of where yeah. Um, without getting too specific, I understand that there's some elevation in this unit and okay. uh, that there can potentially be antelope in the elevation, um, which would be pretty cool. Um, I'd be really interested to see that. Uh, yeah, man. I mean, we're, we're the, you know, my, my personal technique. Um, I don't really like being in vehicles. I like, uh, yeah, <laughs> Uh, as we alluded to from that 2020 caribou hunt, I, um, my strategy is basically to find good habitat and apply boot leather, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, you know, just kind of 
it, when you're antelope hunting, you hear this all the time, but you can look at attractive land and say, okay, I don't see any animals on this. And then if you just sit there and have a cup of coffee or whatever for 10 minutes, you'll see groups of animals that appear out of those subtle folds in topography oh, yeah. as if they just appeared out of thin air, man. There can be, I remember the first antelope hunt I did out in Wyoming, we, we were doing that exact thing. Actually, we just kind of stopped the truck and took a break. Um, we'd been glassing this big basin and we just kind of like turned the truck off, sat down, we're having a snack and uh, a herd of like, seven or eight animals one of which was a very nice buck appeared over this hillside only a few hundred yards away from us um and it was in an area that we had spent some time looking at and that's uh you know it, it's probably intuitive to people who live out there but if you're coming from the east coast um it, the majority of animals are not going to be visible to you just from your initial look at a yeah. piece of they're like they're Uh, like experts they're like experts at hiding literally like in plain sight like they they will disappear into topography that you wouldn't even think like a grasshopper could hide in like i remember on this hunt i was on that we were talking about the film it was like we didn't see anything we actually went up to this ridge and right when we got up there i saw a um a side by side with two guys like right off i'm like oh man we're screwed like we're done and we decided to kind of like be patient and work around kind of do like a little bit of like a pincher move to try to get around to where we thought they might be and and we're up there looking and kind of trying to be patient and like you know couldn't see anything to your naked eye you're like there's no animals here. Like you can see everything. And then like we went up this tiny fold, like there was just this nothing little thing and boom, there they are like staring at us basically like the doe was and the buck didn't see us, but they can hide in plain sight. It's crazy. That exact same thing happened on my antelope hunt last year. Um, I went out there last year uh, with some of my buddies from school and we just had two doe tags Um first time i'd ever done a hunt with just doe tags and it was super cool man but yeah same thing we uh we hiked in basically i was using like i was using the edge of this ridge as cover so we were hiking you know about uh three-fourths of the way up this ridge and we would just kind of like pop over and look and um this ridge presented a really commanding view of this little valley below it extending to the north mm-hmm. and we like came up to the end of this ridge and we kind of like really quietly creep up to the top, peek over. There's nothing in this valley. And so we're like, oh, okay, we can hop down in there and make our way over to our next ridge to glass. And I kind of thought, I was like, well, you know, there still could be animals in here, but whatever. We'll just make our way to that next ridge because we're more likely to see them in this area that we haven't looked at yet. And then sure enough, as soon as we started like hauling across this relatively open area, bam, heard of like, five or six of them shows up 200 nice. yards away and it's like, okay, well, <laughs> so yeah, they're like you said, man, they're experts at hiding. And, um, yeah, that's, that's really where they like, live. They uh, live on the plains. They really, have to be able to hide in that, you know, like that's what they're masters of that terrain. Yeah. Yeah, man. Uh, they, they definitely are. Um, they're just such crazy animals. Um, I don't know. I think you mentioned this in your video, but uh, 
that like the way that pronghorn evolved is just so wild. Um, you know, being able to, you know, everybody knows how fast they are and everything, uh, that that speed was evolved to outrun the now extinct North American cheetah. Yeah. And that like <laughs> their closest living relative is the giraffe. Uh, oh, really? I didn't know that. Crazy animals, man. And yeah, it's uh, apparently taxonomically they're closest to it's it's a tie between giraffe and an animal called the okapi o-k-a-p-i um, is that that weird mongolian weird. <laughs> antelope with the like the wiggly nose i think you're thinking of the saiga antelope yeah, uh, yeah is the one with that crazy nasal tube okapis i think are a little more southern than mongolia um but uh yeah there's just you know, like very clearly nothing else like them on the yeah. continent of uh, North America. Um, and yeah, man, basically what we're going to do to get back to our techniques is we're going to like, we found good areas and we're going to just take some long hikes and spend a lot of time glassing and, uh, you know, try to, the key for me um, is going to be to try to set up a successful stalk environment towards the end of the day because daytime highs out there are close to 90. Wow. But overnight lows are going to be getting all the way down into the low 50s, maybe even high 40s. So mm. um, best case scenario would be a very short tracking job <laughs> right yeah. at sundown. Um and that way you don't have super hot temps when you're trying to butcher an animal. Um, I like, if possible, I would love to let one hang overnight. If the temps do get down into the forties, I find that that really does a lot uh, in terms of helping the tenderness and flavor of your meat. Yeah. Um, Are you guys camping so, out in the hunt and, area? Uh, no, no, we've got a little cabin rented cool. uh, in a little town near where we're gonna be so nice um <laughs> i already told told my buddy disclaimer the hunt is gonna be run on east coast time we'll be we'll be head heading out there well before sunlight every day and then um you know you hang out out there all day and then kind of start trying to locate a herd that you can maybe make a stalk on in the afternoon um, yeah that's but, good man like uh, that's yeah, a we're good just, we're just day hunting yeah, that's a good strategy though because, um, and I'm kind of guilty of this myself too. But a lot of guys, you know, will kind of get a little, eh, maybe get a little lazy on antelope. Um, you know, they have this reputation of, you know, if you can, if you can get even just like a mile away from a road, like you might be looking at animals that most guys drive right past. And a lot of guys don't get out there to the unit till like you know nine nine thirty in the morning. And we kind of did that too on ours because we were staying in town and it was just a little bit of a drive and mainly that was because we were with my dad and my uncle who i mean my dad i love him but he's he's not the type to like sleep in a tent for <laughs> multiple nights so um but i think that's a good strategy and that's kind of what i'm going to employ as well on my hunt which i'm i'm actually more i don't know if nervous is the right word but like I'm more stressed a little bit about my antelope hunt than any other hunt, even though like physically it's going to be the easiest hunt is just because I'm going to a 0.100% draw unit with very limited access to public. 
but we're going to get out there a day early to scout. And my plan is to camp in the unit and literally be there just, you know, like sunrise on our spots every morning and just, uh, and just work and grind until we, until we fill some tags. So I'm hoping it'll work out. Yeah, man. I mean, that's, that's really the key, uh, that I have found for antelope hunting out there is it's, it's like, you know, most people are going to use the roads and use infrastructure to their advantage, which is a totally legitimate technique. Um, but if you're a non-resident who doesn't have good intel on the area and is not super familiar with it, then, hey, man, you find somewhere that is difficult to access and, yeah, get in there early yeah. <laughs> as far as you can. Um, yeah, and that's basically what we're going to do. It's going to be interesting to see, like, like <laughs> it'll be funny to see, I don't know, it's just going to be interesting to see, like, how your hunt goes down versus my hunt goes down. You're, like, in a premier, like, sick area, like, super hard to draw. I'm in, like, you can still probably buy a leftover tag for my unit. <laughs> so it'll be interesting to see, like, what how it goes down. But I have, like, I have, like between i think i think i have eight or nine full hunt days planned though so like i should be able to get something done in that amount of time uh if if you have eight or nine hunt (laughs) days for just that antelope tag then yeah man i think uh i think a guy who is in uh your kind of physical ability class and uh you know as long as you can shoot straight i think you should be okay um knowing knowing how dedicated you are to uh crossing all your t's and dotting your i's that's a that's a very long time for an antelope tag (laughs) it is i'm hoping we can head home early you know but like i don't want to come home without an antelope (laughs) yeah no you you'll be just fine man and um also you kind of alluded to this earlier but uh it's (laughs) To make you feel better about that, in addition to having uh, one of the most desirable antelope tags out there, I also have one of the least desirable antelope tags oh, out yeah. there that, uh, <laughs> that I picked up off the Wyoming list. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, uh, no secrets about that one. That's uh, <laughs> Unit 10 Doe Tag, and it's like they give a lot of them out there's a tiny amount of public yeah. and uh it's it's gonna be a pretty weird hunt so are you I'm gonna, gonna be right there in the are you gonna do that hunt? if i end up gonna do that uh i'm trying to make it work man i'm starting a new job uh yeah. flying in two weeks so i kind of got to see how the schedule oh, really? shakes out with that but if i can uh if i can escape for a long weekend to run out there for two or three days then I'm going to go give it a peek um, yeah. because realistically you can cover all of the public land in that unit in about an afternoon. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm complaining about yeah. limited public in my unit and compared to that one, um, I think there's probably more public land in my unit than your entire unit's entire area. It's a tiny unit. Yes. Yeah, it's a, it's a tiny area, and a tiny percentage of it is public. Yeah. Uh, so there's there's a reason bags are very easy to get there. Um, there are like 
you know, it's the tale of landlocked public. They're like two or three tracts that probably would be pretty good, but you literally would have to either take a helo or jump into them because <laughs> they're <laughs> landlocked um, on all sides and there are, uh, you know, there's no way. So, um, yeah, man, I'm, cool. uh, I'm going to try to, you know, I got a few squirrely little ideas that I may be able to, uh, get on some animals with, but yeah, that, that tag is going to be, uh, the highest level of difficulty in terms of finding animals and competition. So yeah. you're not alone in that <laughs> sense. Yeah. I, yeah, I keep like the other day I was just like in my head overthinking it and like freaking out and I texted Jaden Bales and like that dude always makes me feel better. He's just so positive. He was just like, "Oh, you'll you'll be fine, man." Like <laughs> there's just a lot of antelope in <laughs> eastern Wyoming and um with the amount of time I got, you know, planned and the amount of e-scouting I've been doing, like I have faith we'll make something happen. So, I'm not too worried about it, but um so Hope everybody is getting stoked about antelope season now that we're talking about this stuff. And again, go check out the film if you're jonesing for some antelope content. But um, one more topic I did want to breach with you just a little bit um, is uh, something we talk about a lot. Is um, so I bought actually it's right here. I'll show you. So Ned is the guy that originally when I when he got me into hunting, he you know, I, I needed basically the first trip we went on. I had a little just to show like how inexperienced and stuff I was. You probably remember this, Ned. Like, I had like one of those like the rifle's actually not bad, but it was like um, one of those like package deals you get with like a scope mounted on there from the factory, and it was just like a total piece of garbage. And like the rings were garbage. And like about a week before the trip, I noticed the scope had slid back like a quarter of an inch, and. uh just like a debacle and but ned with ned's help i was able to actually get a rig that was somewhat alaska ready and um and then you know as i'm on a trip i started realizing like this is something i want to do and invest in getting the right gear and stuff and so ned talked me into well not talked me into we, we talked a lot about it and i ended up going with for my first real nice backcountry rifle a 6.5 creedmoor and i've had a lot of success yeah. with it um Actually, all three of these animals you see behind me, white tail, a black tail, and an antelope, um, all of these fell to my Creedmoor. The black tail and the antelope did not take one step. They dropped dead in their tracks. That The white tail did run, but I was using a Hornady ELDX bullet. Um, these ones I was using a homemade by Ned copper solid uh, copper mono bullet hammer so and i shot another white tail with it with ned's uh ned and i's round that we put together and um and that one did drop pretty much as well so um however i have an elk tag this year and you know me and ned might vary a little bit here but i i went ahead and i got a 300 win mag and Ned thinks I'm crazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I definitely, I definitely don't think you're crazy, man. That is a beautiful rifle, um, dude. This fact, thing is sick. This is, is a Seekins nice Precision. Than, Seekins yeah, Precision Havoc yeah, Element. Yeah, that's, that's... Sorry, there's a lag. We keep talking over each other, but um, 
if you are watching this on YouTube, I'm just showing um, the Seekins Precision, Seekins Precision Havoc Element. Um, I ordered this at the Expo last year, and I just got this about two months ago. They just stopped taking online orders because they were selling so many of these things. They can't keep up with the demand, but um, um, I'm going to have Maddie Nelson from Seekins on the podcast in a week or so. But anyway, the reason is is because, and I want Ned to talk about this because he's very knowledgeable about ballistics and stuff, but um, as I said before, I had really good luck with that Creedmoor on game animals. Um, I am going to be using that on at least one hunt this year, um, especially with that copper mono bullet. But to me, when I got this, I got this Idaho elk tag, you know, I just feel like I'd rather have more gun than I need, like potentially, than... I just feel like there's more room for error. Like, why not have the extra knockdown power of a Magnum? And I'm still shooting a copper mono. Um, and, you know, that being said, I'm probably almost, yeah, I'm not going to shoot over 500. I probably won't shoot over 400. I would shoot 500 maybe if the circumstances were perfect um, and it was an elk, you know, the big target zone. But um, anyway, I, I got that specifically because... Um, I personally would rather not hunt elk with a 6.5 Creedmoor. So I'm going to say, take it away, Ned. Uh, well, yeah, man, I definitely don't think you're crazy. That's uh, that's a beautiful rifle and a very capable setup. Um, yeah, that, that thing's awesome, man. Uh, uh, just, just to clarify, I'm not anti-Magnum at all. Um, 300 wind mags, a great round. I've owned a few of them. Uh, they're, they're great guns. Um, I just think that like any tool of any kind in the world, magnums have a very specific utility. Mm. Um, and you know, for shooting a big bull elk and some, a nasty part of the sawtooths in Idaho, that probably is a good option. You know, if you're, if you're trying to anchor a big animal like that, um, yeah, that, that may be, uh, the right tool. Um, the reason that I am a little bit hesitant to recommend Magnums for most shooters is because there's a lot more going on with the Magnum versus a standard intermediate rifle caliber. Um, you know, like, uh, 308 or 65 Creed or 7 mil out 8, whatever mm -hmm. you have. Uh, there's a lot more going on with the Magnum versus that than most people think. Um, you know, so I hear a lot of, I hear a lot of guys say, uh, okay, well, you know, every, everybody knows that Magnums have more noise and recoil than yeah. a standard caliber. And I hear a lot of people say like, ah, oh, well, I'm going to be wearing ear pro and recoil doesn't bother me. So what do I care? And <laughs> which I think I know, said those exact same things like because I things don't bother me. yeah because I grew up shooting you know yep. waterfowling with three and a half inch shells that have a twelve gauge. Um, so I think I did say that too. Although I do have a can supposed to be here soon, but I've already decided like it's too late in the game. I got my custom dial already. I'm zeroed. Like I'm not changing it now. So that's gonna have to be next year anyway. But um. I didn't want to interrupt you. I just want to say I was one of those guys that said, oh, I'm used to the recoil too. But I have noticed I am – I'm going to say I'm definitely more accurate with that Creedmoor than I am with the with the Winmag. 
Well, that I, I think <laughs> that that is uh, a salient observation. Um, you know, in a world where there are not many absolutes, it is absolutely true that every shooter shooting the exact same rifle in a lighter recoiling caliber is more accurate. Mm. That is a hundred percent true across the board. Uh, lighter recoiling rifles are more easily to shoot accurately. And that's kind of where I start encountering some hesitancy with Magnums. Um, you know, people say noise and recoil with Magnums, but there's actually more going on than just that. Uh, really the correct way to say it is that there's a greater exchange of energy, right? Because if you put your physics hat on for a second, you're converting the chemical energy of the propellant into a lot of different stuff. And some of that is noise, some of that's recoil, some of that's heat. Um, but also, you know, you think about Newtonian physics, uh, third law of uh, Newtonian physics, every reaction equal and opposite reaction. Um, you're, Recoil impulse is holistically greater with a Magnum caliber rifle than it is a standard caliber rifle. And a really great example of that is the video that I sent you the other day, yeah. um, which basically for the audience is a 60,000 frames per second view of a 30-06 firing, I think, 180-grain partition. Um, it was put up by this guy, Brian Litz, who is a very knowledgeable ballistician, uh, super scientific, very knowledgeable guy, probably knows more about ballistics than I ever will. Um, and basically what it shows is it they have a little stick indicating where the muzzle of the gun starts. And it shows this super slow-mo of the projectile exiting the, the rifle's barrel. And... As you can see in this video, there's actually quite a bit of movement that happens before the projectile even exits the barrel of the rifle. Mm -hmm. And with the Magnum, you know, like we said, every part of the recoil impulse is going to be greater to include the amount that the rifle moves before the projectile exits. And so if you happen to be in anything other than an absolutely perfect shooting position in the field, right. uh, then, you know, that discrepancy is going to be magnified. Um, so that's one thing to think about. Um, another thing to think about, uh, if you kind of put on your psychology hat, take your physics hat off and put your psychology hat on, um, <laughs> If you're an experienced shooter, Magnum's probably uh, a little bit easier for you to get used to. But if, you know, a lot of people ask me, like, oh, what caliber should I get for their first rifle? Like, when you asked me that question a few years ago, yeah. definitely not a Magnum. Because, um, you know, you talk about the theory of primacy, right? Your first experience with a firearm is going to stick with you forever. I mm. see a lot of people that have had their first rifle as one that recoils really hard. And those shooters, when I'm helping them or we're shooting together, it is very, very hard to get their fundamentals good because every time wow. they're doing, you know, they're squeezing their trigger to uh, break a shot, they're thinking about how much that rifle is going to beat the stuffing out of them. So, <laughs> and you know, that only gets amplified more and more when you have, when you're looking at a big animal through the scope and your adrenaline's going, and, mm -hmm. you know, so that those are some of the hesitancies I have with Magnums. Um, like I said, they, uh, they're, they're a very good tool 
for a specific set of circumstances. And which um, would be, you know, I think, well, yeah, if you're in a, if you're in a tough part of Idaho and you need to put an elk down quickly, that is a great tool there. Um, One of the benefits that you get, like you were talking about, you're running copper monos. I think you said you're running the uh, Barnes Vortex factory ammo. That in my opinion is, yeah, that's, that's probably one of the best projectiles for elk hunting in existence. And running a Magnum, you extend the range at which that projectile will have adequate expansion by quite a bit. Um, so that lets you take longer shots more ethically in terms of your terminal ballistic performance. So, you know, that's, that's a very valid argument for Magnums. Um, I will say, uh, now it's been eight months ago, a good way to justify buying a new rifle to your wife too. (laughs) (laughs) I need it, man. I mean, they, it's like I said, it's very capable caliber. Yeah. Caveat. Right. Uh, you know, I was down in down in Texas yeah, in January guy. doing a nil guy. And uh nil guy are known for being one of the most difficult animals on earth to kill. Uh the bull that I shot was, you know, probably about eight hundred, somewhere eight, nine hundred pounds, big wow. bull. And uh I shot that thing with my thirty out six one round and it was down in less than a hundred yards. So mm-hmm. um I think really where I fall on things, uh, a really interesting book to read is Alaska's Wolfman by Frank Glazer. Uh, Basically, he was this uh, Alaskan mountain man in the early 1900s. And bottom line is that guy killed more game, moose, doll sheep, caribou, than probably anyone alive on the planet today ever has or will. (laughs) And he talks about all the different rifles he had and it's... He basically says it's all about shot placement. You know, yeah. the different calibers don't really matter so much. Shot placement is like first, second, third, and fourth. And then you can start talking about everything else. Totally. Um, so, you know, shot placement and bullet selection are number one and number two. And, um, you know, that's just me personally. I, uh, I kind of like bow hunting with a rifle. In other words, getting as close as I can to animals that I'm going to shoot at. Um, but uh yeah you know like i said there's there's definitely a specific set of circumstances like if you need to justify a new firearm purchase <laughs> <laughs> exactly and yeah. Great for. yeah no i mean like i think you're spot on with the shot placement thing i mean um yes at the end of the day i still feel more comfortable taking this magnum with me on that idaho hunt because of all the reasons we just said um however I have no doubt that a well-placed shot from my Creedmoor with that load that we developed um, just right in the Boilermaker of an elk, you know, at relatively short yardage, you know, three, 300 yards or something, 350, I have no doubt it would kill the elk. Um, so I think you're totally spot on. Um, which, did you, I don't know if you noticed, but you, did you see in the antelope film when my cousin, um, when his gun misfired with that thirty out six, he did not flinch at all, and he does not shoot that much. Did you notice that? I did. Yeah. Yep. That was pretty good. But um, anyway. Yeah, man. 
That was good fundamentals. I guess the uh, the, the thing I would say to uh, to kind of wrap up the ballistics discussion is, um, you know, six point five Creed has gotten kind of a rap in the past few years. You know, yeah. like you see everybody just loves to rip on 6.5 Creed. And that's because people are trying to use the tool in a manner that it was not designed to be used, right? Yeah. Like people are trying to take all of these long range shots on large animals with yeah. an intermediate rifle caliber like that. And realistically, 6.5 Creed is a great round for three, 400 yards and in. It yeah. is not the caliber to be shooting at an elk or even a mule deer really at five, 600 yards. Um, you know, it just doesn't have a ton of energy downrange that yeah. far. So that's really the bad rap there. Um, you know, as long as you use your firearm appropriately, know, you know, come up with a coherent way to set your maximum effective range. And then you stick to that. You yeah. see so many people these days that want to look cool, taking a super long shot and they stretch a situation beyond their capabilities. And I mean, the, the number of videos out there now of animals getting wounded where people are celebrating that as an accomplishment is, uh, you know, like yeah. to, to me, that's not the way that I like my hunts to go. That's not what hunting's about no. on my end. Um, so yeah, yeah I, I just think you got to use whatever tool you have selected appropriately. Yeah. Other just random tip, if you're out there, if you're shooting factory ammo, I noticed the other day when I was shooting, I like was shooting pretty good and then like stuff started to get weird and I looked and like in a different box of factory ammo had completely different brass. Like it even had a different name stamped on it. Like it didn't say Barnes, it said like Nexus and it was a completely different color and like it wasn't shooting the same. So watch your factory yeah ammo. Was... you know man yeah factory ammo um <laughs> I, getting into reloading the past three or four years has uh really been a great experience for me because yeah you start to notice exactly what you just said there are a lot of discrepancies with factory yeah. ammo not just with the components but also like the length of factory ammo the dimensions that they load stuff a lot of variation there um a lot of the propellants that they use in those are blends or mixes and they're proprietary yeah. and uh, you never know if that's stayed the same. Um, so yeah, they're definitely, you know, I, I like to say if you are shooting factory ammo, probably setting your MER at 300 yards is a good idea, at least for me. Yeah. That has never been something that I have found to be a limiting factor really in yeah. any of the places that I've hunted. And with as much variation as you encounter with stuff like you just said, you know, it really just uh, keeps your margin for error within an acceptable accuracy and precision limit. Yeah, for sure, man. So what, uh, what gun are you taking on your uh, antelope hunt? Uh, seven mil out of eight, man. That's <laughs> that same rifle. I, I was, uh, you know, I the put Alaska together a 6.5 PRC this year. Yeah, the the standard Alaska Gat, man. That nice. thing is just uh, it's a proven killer, and I ran a range with it uh, this week, and it just hammers. I know that thing like the back of my hand. Um, you know, I've got a great load that has performed really well, and like I wanted to take my six point five PRC on this antelope hunt so that I could 
you know, be a cool guy with a 500 yard MER and everything. But, uh, <laughs> as it turns out, it's really hard to find ranges in Virginia where it you is. can like do a solid job of developing a legitimately field tested dope yep. card out to 500 yards. It is and hard. Since you basically I wasn't have to do, do private land. Oh, you definitely have to do private land. There's nowhere public. And the closest private land to where I am is like, you got to spend a whole day going there just to run one range. Mm -hmm. So, you know. Yeah, I found a spot. I found a spot with a friend that's, I mean, but it's an hour and a half drive. And, uh, which is not like crazy, but, you know, if you're busy and you got a family, you got stuff to do. I mean, adding an extra three hours onto a range just in travel time is, is kind of annoying, but. It is tough, man. Um, well, I do want to ask one last antelope question to bring us full circle, and then and then we can call it because I know you got stuff to do. But you mentioned like looking for a good habitat and stuff like that. I'm I'm curious, like um, as far as e scouting goes, like what kind of stuff are you keying in habitat wise on for antelope? Well, this year, and I mean, I think realistically going forward. Um, with a tag that is going to be hunted in August, you should probably be looking at water sources. Uh, you know, you can look at historical precipitation maps. Um, I think the National Weather Service puts out one that's pretty good, but uh, pretty much everywhere with pronghorn antelope habitat, or almost everywhere in the West, is experiencing a pretty bad drought right now. Um, so, yeah, you probably want to be looking at water sources because animals have to water at least twice a day. And uh, yeah, that's, you know, they're, they're only going to be so far from those. Yeah. Um, they, they're they surprisingly resilient in drought conditions. Antelope, from what I understand, do better than a lot of other species. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's really like number one. It's like finding good habitat and then finding good habitat that is within a reasonable range of water. Um, so that, that's really the big driving force that I'm seeing. Um, you know, that can, that can start to change a little later in the season when uh, climatologically you probably will have more precipitation around the time of your hunt and yeah. whenever that is October or whatever. Um, so then your priorities so, might shift a little bit and start looking for like trying to avoid hunting pressure and yeah. just getting into habitat that generally looks like good antelope habitat. But for my tag, it's going to be stuff that's near water sources. Yeah. So my hunt will actually open in late September. So, um, could be even potentially getting some little bit of rutting activity at that point still. Um, and, uh, but I found, um, you know, for the listeners, maybe heading out for the first antelope hunt or whatever, like the areas that really um, we found was the best habitat were, and it's going to be different from where your hunt is probably, but large, and, you know, if you've hunted antelope, you're, this is probably obvious, but large sage flats really um, were what, what held the antelope on our, in our experience. Although the one I killed yeah, yeah, was up that. on a ridge top, so it's not only that. So don't neglect the other stuff too. But actually, it was kind of crazy. It was like a ridge, and there was like a cliff on the bottom, and maybe it was pressure or something that had him up there. But um, but uh, 
we we found we saw most of the animals in like large sage flats. Yeah, you know, definitely. Um, yeah, definitely. When you think antelope, you should be thinking sage, you know, prairie country. Um, but in a unit like the one that you're talking about, either for your last hunt or this upcoming hunt, I find that the driving force for those animals during hunting season really is escaping pressure. Yeah. Because uh, realistically, in the eastern third of Wyoming, there is pretty much good habitat for antelope everywhere. You know, yeah. like almost all of that state, uh, they can they can find good forage in. Um, and the, the big thing is, like, <laughs> you pull up on a piece of private that is next to a large area of public, pretty good chance that you're going to see a bunch of animals right over the line. Oh, yeah. Private they stuff. know what's up. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, like, they, they know. And the big thing they're trying to get away from is vehicles that are driving slowly mm -hmm. so uh yeah or stop so um, have they been having yeah, much that, problems that's really with... my biggest have... sorry this lag keeps screwing us up have they been having much problems with blue tongue out in uh in nevada i've heard some guys talking about that in wyoming hurting the population some yeah uh i know there was an outbreak of it uh, in northeastern Wyoming, it was pretty bad last year. I haven't heard about it so much in Nevada. Um, the biggest thing that I've heard about in Nevada is that they've had some pretty bad wildfires this year, and yeah. you know, just all of the fallout from this historic drought that's going on out there right now. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think Nevada is uh, one of the states that's less affected by all of those kind of wildlife oh, pandemic good. diseases, uh, CWD and EHD and everything. So, cool, man. You know, I'm not well, a wildlife biologist, but my understanding is that they don't have to contend with those as much. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's cool, man. I'm excited to see how your hunt goes. Um, I'm sure probably sometime in the next couple of weeks, I'll be getting a, uh, a photo come through on my phone of a nice buck. So looking forward to seeing that. And every time I talk to you, I learn a new word. Today's Ned word was ballistician. Never heard that one. So um, Ned's a walking thesaurus, if you guys haven't figured that out yet. But, um, yeah, man, good talking to you as always, dude. Yeah, man, hopefully uh, that's exactly how it goes. Hopefully it's, uh, you know, victory high fives and beers <laughs> and all that good stuff here next week. Uh, still, yeah. still got to put the legwork in though. You know, you can't, can't count your chickens oh, before sure. they hatch. Nope. But that's what makes it fun, right? Yeah, absolutely, man. It's, uh, it's always an adventure. I'm just super excited to see somewhere new, um, mm -hmm. get out there and, uh, See, see what this whole having a desirable tag thing is all about. <laughs> <laughs> all right, cool, man. Well, when you send me that grip and grin, if it's cool with you, I'll share it. And, um, and then hopefully I'll be sending you one too. So anyway, dude, uh, thanks again. And, um, yeah, I'm sure. I'll talk to you soon. Yeah, man. Always a pleasure. Uh, looking forward to see how everything shakes out uh, with both of our falls this year. Yeah, man. All righty. 